Amen. Well, good morning, everybody. So good to see you all this morning. Good to be here to share the word with you all. Uh, my name is Mark. If you don't know me, I work for the Risen Collective. And I also have the privilege of teaching the Risen Institute that meets here on Sunday nights. And it's getting ready to start up again. I think the last Sunday in January is when we start. Super excited about that. So just a shameless plug to sign up for that. So the, the name of the course is How to Read Narrative, but don't let that scare you if that sounds stodgy or cold. Most of it is just going to be like a big Bible study where we're going to be going through the, the Joseph narrative of the Old Testament, so Genesis 37 through 50. And along the way, we're going to be learning how to read biblical narrative, but it's, it's going to be amazing. Um, I, before I started prepping for this course, I thought I knew the Joseph narrative pretty well, but as I've been studying, I've just been blown away at how, how at the beauty of God in that portion of Scripture. So if you haven't already, I encourage you to get on the website and sign up for that course. We'll get to go through this spring. All right, let me pray for us, and then we'll jump into, we're back in Luke this morning, so we'll jump into our text for this morning. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that you speak to us and that you are ministering to our hearts even now as we hear your word spoken and proclaimed in our midst. And we ask, Lord, that you would give us ears to hear what you are saying to us. And Holy Spirit, would you do your good work in our hearts? Would you change and shape our hearts? Even as Zach was just praying, that we would know your heart and that you would conform us more into the image of Jesus as we hear more of who you are and what you've called us to do. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I mentioned, we're back in Luke, and we're picking up where we left off all the way back in November is the last time we were in Luke. But we're in the middle of one of Jesus' most famous sermons called the Sermon on the Plain. And in this sermon, Jesus is talking about what it means to be part of the kingdom of God. And if I could summarize that message, that I think that Jesus is saying that the kingdom of God is an upside-down, inside-out kingdom. And so therefore, Jesus is saying, if you are a part of that kingdom, your life is going to look differently than the people around you. And in the passage right before this, Jesus talked about how kingdom members should interact with non-believers, with people who are, who are outside of the kingdom. He says we shouldn't just love those who love us back, but we should even love our enemies, those who we know won't love us back. He says we should lend our money and do good not just to those who will pay us back, but even to those who we know won't pay us back. We can call this the economy of the kingdom of God. Economies run on a system of give and take, right? And it might be easiest to think of this in terms of money. Like if you have a friend and, and you go out to coffee with them and they buy your coffee, they're honoring that relationship. They're honoring that friendship. But the next time you go out to coffee with them, maybe you're going to buy their coffee because you don't want to be a mooch the whole time, right? You want to show honor to that friendship as well. And that's how economies work. That's how relational economies work, is there's a little bit of a give and take. And that same dynamic even happens when money isn't even involved. 
you probably know that there's only so many times you can call up your friend and ask them to help you move furniture. You do that like one or two times and then you're done unless you have a really good friend because there's only so many times you can ask your friend to do something like that. That's a relational economy category. And so here's how the world's relational economy works. So some people just want to break even. They want to make sure that they just give as much as they take. Other times, there's people who want to give more relationally, but they do that so that they can kind of make sure that you owe them something, so that they can kind of hold you in their debt by keeping on giving you things. We have this mental calculus for each person, and we relate to one another based on our economy of friendship. But Jesus takes the economy of the world, and he says that the economy of the kingdom of God turns that upside down and inside out. It's radically different from the world. He says that your standard of love and giving and doing good should not be based on the world's economy, but on the mercy of our Father in heaven. So back in verse 36, the verse right before our passage for this morning, Jesus says, be merciful even as your Father is merciful. And here's the really good news this morning. Our Father in heaven is abounding in mercy and loving kindness. We have received oceans of mercy from our Father. Our Father has poured out His mercy on us to the point of overflow. The Father pours out His mercy not in a calculated, stingy way, but out of the limitless abundance of His heart towards us. This is glorious news, and it frames the way that we live as kingdom people. So verse 36, be merciful as your Father in heaven is merciful, is kind of the hinge between the passage that came right before and this passage for this week. And you might have a section break in your Bible between the previous passage and this passage, but that's okay. That's still the banner over everything that Jesus says. Remember, this is one sermon. And so the mercy of the Father is the banner over all of Jesus' instructions in this passage. But now there is a shift where Jesus is talking about how we relate to people within the kingdom of God. So the passage before was about those who might not love you back. And now this passage is about, okay, now within the family of God, how do we treat one another? And we see that as Jesus uses the word brother a lot, where he's talking about a family relationship here. And if I could sum up Jesus' teaching here, I would say that he says, as members of the kingdom of God, we should relate to one another with a spirit of generosity. A spirit of generosity. And then in this passage, I think Jesus expands on what that spirit of generosity looks like. So first he talks about the call to generosity, and then he talks about the source of generosity, and finally an application of generosity. So that's how we're going to spend our time this morning is the call, the source, and the application of generosity. And I'll warn you, point number one is way longer than the others. So if I'm still waxing eloquent on point one and time is going on, then don't worry. Points two and three are a little bit shorter. So first, the, the call to generosity. Let's look again at verses 37 through 38. 
Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. So verse 37 gives four quick commands, two of them negative and two of them positive. Negatively, Jesus says that kingdom people shouldn't judge and they shouldn't condemn. And then positively, he says that kingdom people should forgive and they should also give. So let's look at the negative commands first. Don't judge and don't condemn. And I want to start out by talking about what this doesn't mean, and then we'll talk about what it means. So here's what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that kingdom people should just adopt the you-do-you mantra of the world. Jesus doesn't intend for us to live, live a blissfully ignorant life towards other believers where anything goes. That there are commands in the Bible that show us appropriate ways in which we should judge others. For example, John 7, 24, Jesus says, Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. So here Jesus is saying that there's a right way to judge and there's a wrong way to judge. Similarly, Hebrews 5.14 says that for mature Christians with constant practice can distinguish good from evil, which is similar to the idea of judging. Or take Ephesians 5.14, that believers are to speak the truth in love, that all of these references are key parts of the Christian life. And they all require some level of discernment or judging between what is good and what is bad. So it doesn't mean that Christians should throw their brains out the window when it comes to think how we think about other people. So what then does it mean when Jesus says, judge not lest you be judged? So I have three thoughts for us for how we can walk in what Jesus is saying here. First, We are equipped to judge actions, not motivations. We can judge actions, but not motivations. We're not God. We can't see into the motivations of the heart. We can observe actions, and we can and we should discern whether those actions are worthy of the kingdom of God. But we need to leave the judgment of the motivations to God himself. Because the truth is, we have no idea what people have gone through. We have, you have no idea what that person experienced in the car right before they walked up into church. You have no idea what that child has gone through and the trauma of his past when you see him in the grocery store. So even the actions might have a different come from than what we think. And so we need to be careful before we judge motivations or before we make character assessments based on the actions that we see. We shouldn't be quick to judge what's going on in the heart of a person. Second, we need to reserve the final judgment for God. That if a person is truly a a Christian, their sins, past, present, and future, have been paid for by the precious blood of Christ. Scripture says that as far as the east is from the west, so far he has removed our transgressions from us. Our sins are at the bottom of the sea. So far be it from us 
to hold on to someone else's sins longer than Jesus does. If that person's sins are at the bottom of the sea, then who are we to hang on to their sins when Jesus has paid for them? The generosity and the mercy of God through the cross is immeasurable and unsurpassable. And Jesus calls us to imitate that generosity and mercy of God in the way that we consider other brothers and sisters in the kingdom. Third, our judgments should be focused on the primary issues of the gospel, not on preferences or issues of conscience. So the Bible is clear that when there are things that are central to Christianity, part of our job as members of the kingdom of God is to keep each other in check. If there's a brother or sister in the church who begins to doubt that Jesus is God, that's something that we need to talk to them about. Say, brother, I'm concerned about how you're thinking about the person of Jesus. And when it comes to the clear moral teachings from God in the Scriptures, we need to be able to be firm on those beliefs. If someone in the church who's professing to be a Christian is practicing sex outside of marriage, we can't say, well, the Bible says don't judge, so I don't really know if, if that's a sin or not. The Bible's teaching on this matter could not be clearer. And there are all kinds of Scripture passages that say that we need to encourage one another towards holy living. So what does it actually mean then that we should judge not lest you be judged? Well, I think it's when we get into the weeds of the secondary and lesser important but still important issues of Christianity where we need to reserve our judgment. Take parenting, for example. There's lots of issues connected with parenting, and there may be many viable options for how you can honor the Lord in your parenting. Maybe it's the issue of just your general parenting style or how you set your baby's sleep schedule or what school you choose for your children or when you set your kid's bedtime. All those issues are not issues to judge people over. When I was in my 20s, I was very passionate and very convinced that I knew all the right ways to do all the things. I thought I knew exactly the right parenting style, exactly the right kind of school that my children should be in, and I had a lot of pride about those things. And I judged others who weren't doing exactly what I was doing because I was convinced those things were the best. And the Lord is rooting that out of me. And I'm praying that the Lord continues to grow me in giving kingdom generosity towards others on those issues. And maybe that can be your prayer as well as you hear Jesus teaching on this issue. Jesus calls us to this kind of kingdom generosity because we have a tendency, don't we, to be generous towards ourselves and critical towards others. That's kind of the natural human tendency. You just wake up in the morning and you're generous towards yourself. I need a little bit more sleep. I need a little bit of this. And we give ourselves that. But we're more naturally critical towards others. As I think about the views that I've held in the past, I've changed my mind on all kinds of views as I've grown and lived life a little bit more. But you know what? I'm pretty generous with myself about how I change my views. 
and the missteps that I take along the way. But I find myself being much more critical of others who have held other missteps and other views that I've held in the past. And so Jesus takes that natural human tendency and he turns it on its head that the way of the kingdom is to lean towards relational generosity for others rather than favoring yourself. So now let's look at the first of the two positive commands. So those are the negative commands. Don't judge, don't condemn. And now he says, forgive and you will be forgiven. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Well, Jesus, Jesus isn't holding back any punches for us this morning. We're like, this is the new year, 2024. We're back in Luke. And then bam, he just hits us with these hard teachings. You'll notice that the second part of this command is a promise. He's saying, if you will forgive, then you will also be forgiven. So there's a few questions that we need to have answered to kind of unravel what's going on in this teaching. First of all, who is doing the forgiving? Well, Luke is using something that's pretty common among Jewish and Christian writers that's called the divine passive. So the early Christian and Jewish writers, didn't, they had such a respect for the name of God, they didn't want to write his name down very often. They wrote it down, but they found other ways where they could avoid writing down the name of God. And so if they used the passive voice, Instead of saying, God will forgive you, they would say, you will be forgiven. That way they don't have to write down the name God. But it's clear from that literary device that Luke means God is going to do the forgiving. So now we know who's doing the forgiving. The meaning of the text is clear. The problem is, what do we do with it? Because it's really difficult, right? Jesus is saying that if you forgive then you will also be forgiven. But we know from other teachings in the New Testament that we don't earn God's forgiveness by the way that we forgive others. There's nothing that we can do to earn God's forgiveness. And so I could spend the rest of the sermon this, this morning qualifying and overqualifying this text to the point where we actually miss the force of this text but I don't want to obscure what Jesus is saying to us with a million qualifications. So I want to honor what Jesus is saying here by saying it as forcefully as he does. The Bible does not have a category for a Christian who remains in consistent unforgiveness towards another person. I'll say it again. The Bible doesn't have a category for a Christian who remains in consistent unforgiveness towards another person. It doesn't mean you're not struggling for a moment, but it means that over a long period of time, you stay in consistent unforgiveness towards a person. There's not a category in the Bible for a Christian who lives like that. That's what Jesus is saying. To be a Christian is to be one who forgives all those who sin against you. No, your forgiveness does not earn your salvation. But a clear marker of true salvation is a heart that mirrors God's generous and merciful heart toward other people. If your life is marked by a consistent refusal to forgive, then this is an invitation for a gut check this morning. 
Do you really know the forgiveness that God has given to you? Do you really know that? And if that's you this morning, let me just encourage you. You can't force yourself into this. But as Zach was just encouraging us to press in to know God's heart, that's where you start. Press in to know the heart of God. Press in to know the merciful, abounding in loving kindness heart of God. And that's what unlocks your forgiveness towards other people. And that's the hope that Jesus is giving us this morning. That's what kingdom generosity looks like. Christian forgiveness doesn't mean the platitude forgive and forget. That's not Christian forgiveness. You've really been wronged. You can't just forget about it like it never enters your mind again. But Christian forgiveness is less about forgetting and more about what you do with that thought every time it enters your mind. Every time you run across that, something that triggers that memory of you of how you are wronged, you can't just forget about that, but the question is, what do you do when you encounter it? It means that you refuse to let bitterness come in and cloud your judgment towards that other person. It means that you don't bring up your past hurt in every single conversation. It means that when you think of your past hurt, you think of it the way that God thinks of it, covered by the blood of Christ, buried at the bottom of the sea. Do you know the story of Corrie ten Boom? So she was a Christian, and she, hit, she and her sister Betsy hid Jews during World War II, and they were put in a concentration camp because of their kingdom generosity towards the Jews. And she wrote her story down in a book called The Hiding Place, and in the book, she writes of a time when afterwards, after she was released from Ravensbrook, the concentration camp, she was speaking at a church, and as she was speaking, she spotted a Nazi, one of the soldiers who was at Ravensbrook, the concentration camp where she was tortured. And after she was done speaking, he came up to her and started to talk to her. And he said that he had since become a Christian, and he asked her to forgive him. Here's what she said. And I stood there, I whose sins had every day to be forgiven, and could not. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for asking? It could have not been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out. But to me it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I'd ever had to do. And still I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will, and the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me. I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder and raced down my arm and sprang into our joined hands. And then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. That's what kingdom generosity looks like. 
She had suffered greatly, and her sister had died under this man's watch. Yet because Jesus had forgiven her, she was able to forgive, to extend forgiveness to him. We can be merciful and generous to others because of God's immeasurable, overflowing mercy and generosity towards us. So the second of these two positive commands is similar. Give and it will be given to you. Kingdom generosity includes generosity of time, resources, words of affirmation, and more. But the great enemy of that spirit of kingdom generosity is what I'm calling the spirit of scarcity. This is what we battle every day. When we seek to be generous, we battle against the spirit of scarcity. A spirit of scarcity wants to hoard everything for itself because you never know when you'll need it. You have to preserve everything that you have. When I was a kid, I encountered this problem a lot. I don't know if you encountered this problem as a kid, but it was the problem of, of having to split a cookie in half, having to share a cookie. Okay, so I had an older brother, and for some reason, this problem always entered into my life where there's one cookie, and there's two of us, and we have to share it. And so we had this agreement where I'm pretty sure this is a, a universal agreement in all families, but if one person splits the cookie, the other brother gets to choose the side. Do you know this agreement? Okay. So if I was the one to whom it fell upon to split the cookie, I would take meticulous care to make sure that I split it all the way down the middle because if I messed that up, for sure my brother was going to take the bigger side of the cookie. Or if I was the one who got to choose the sides, once he had split the cookie, I would get out my proverbial measuring tape and make sure that I got the bigger half of the cookie. That's a spirit of scarcity, where I'm going to do everything I can to make sure that I get the most, because I need to hoard what I can get my hands on. But Jesus says, on, but on a much bigger scale than sharing a cookie, that those in the kingdom of God shouldn't have to live out of that mindset. Listen to how Jesus fills this out in verse 38. He says, give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For the, with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. So this is an agricultural analogy. So in agricultural worlds, you would go to the market and you would buy a measure of grain and you would use your tunic to kind of be the bucket for holding your measure of grain. And so sometimes you go to the market and you purchase a measure of grain and they would pour it in and you'd be looking at it like, I'm not sure that's the full measure. I'm, I think that you have a spirit of scarcity. You're not giving me everything. It looks like the bag of Doritos where more than half of it is just air. And you're like, am I just purchasing air here? Or what's going on? That's an economy of scarcity. But Jesus says, as you give, it will be given to you in a surpassing measure of abundance. You're holding your tunic, and the measure is pressed down. It's shaken around to fit more in, and it's even running over. That's a spirit of generosity. That's kingdom economics. And that's what God will pour out on you as you take a step of faith and you give from that spirit of generosity. You don't know how it's going to be paid back to you yet. You don't 
feel like you have that much money in your bank account or that much relational economics in your, in your heart where you feel like you're out of words and your child is still needing to talk to you or your friend is still needing to talk to you, but you give out of a spirit of generosity, trusting in faith that God will replenish with abundance everything that you give. So lean in, give in abundance, and you will receive in abundance. So that's the call to generosity. Now we're going to look at the source of generosity. So Jesus wants to open our eyes to the infinite source of mercy that belongs to people in the kingdom of God. But maybe you're sitting there and thinking, yes, I get that Jesus calls us to be generous, but you don't know my situation. Maybe you feel like you have nothing left to give relationally. Maybe you feel like the budget is really tight right now and there's no more room for increasing generosity. Well, whether it's time or money or energy, it seems like the world is always grabbing for more than what we have. So where do we find the resources to have this spirit of kingdom generosity? Well, the answer comes from the next <clears throat> two verses in our passage. Look down at verses 39 through 40. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. So here Jesus warns us that we can't cultivate a spirit of generosity on our own. If you try to live the way of the kingdom on your own strength, then you'll be like the blind leading the blind. You'll both end up in the ditch. So what do we do instead? We're to look to Jesus. And when we are fully trained, we'll be like him. We'll be like our teacher. So the banner of this passage started out with be like your father, be merciful like your father. And now in the middle of this passage, Jesus is saying, I'm your teacher. I want to fully train you so that you can be like me. So what does it mean to imitate Jesus in kingdom generosity? How does Jesus express kingdom generosity? Well, he shows up to a wedding. And to save the host from embarrassment, he takes the role of the true host and he provides the best wine at the last day of the wedding. Jesus comes and he teaches the multitudes. And after he's done teaching, he's concerned that they're not going to have enough to eat. And so he takes a little bit of fish and a little bit of bread and he multiplies that. And everyone has their full. And the amazing thing is, once they're all done, they've all eaten to fullness and satisfaction, then they pick up the leftovers and guess what? They have more leftover than what they started with. That's what the kingdom of of generosity does is you always have more left over than what you started with. That's gospel economics. That's the beauty of this upside down kingdom. As you pour out and give, Jesus gives you more of himself. And you might be exhausted at the end of the day. You won't be able to buy everything that your neighbors buy, but you have Jesus. And Jesus fills you up much more, abundantly more than you ever had before you gave. There's a supernatural element to this. This is not just 
the beauty of those pay-it-forward lines that sometimes happen at Starbucks, where someone pays for the person behind them, and then they get inspired, and they pay for the person behind them, and the chain goes on and on. And that's, those things are cool. I love being a part of that when it happens. But the kingdom of God is much bigger than what we can produce out of our own human generosity. It takes faith. Because sometimes Jesus chooses to let us see the physical return. Sometimes you give and, and then all of a sudden checks start coming in the mail. Or all of a sudden all kinds of provi- provision starts coming. coming. But sometimes you give and there's a real sacrifice Sometimes you give of yourself, you get up early or you stay up late, you're giving relationally to someone and you're exhausted and you feel that. But do you know what Jesus is doing? Is he is pouring out kingdom blessing on you that most of it you won't even see until the life to come. And as we go through Luke, you'll see that Jesus is unashamed of using heavenly reward as a motivation for holy living for kingdom living in this life. So it takes faith. It takes delighting in Jesus, our heavenly reward, more than we can delight in what we get right now that goes bad, that you know, some of the Christmas toys are maybe already breaking or have lost their appeal. Those things fade away. But the reality of the kingdom of God lasts forever. So that's the source of kingdom generosity. And now let's look at the application of kingdom generosity. Let's look down at verses 41 through 42. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck that is in your brother's eye. This is an amazing, hilarious, and convicting teaching from Jesus, where he's illustrating how we can show relational generosity to our brothers and sisters. As I mentioned before, our natural human tendency is to be generous towards ourselves and to be critical towards others. And Jesus is turning that on its head, and he's saying, lean into generosity towards others instead of towards yourself. So he uses this outlandish story to illustrate his point. So we can think, we think that we see a speck in someone else's eye, but we have a log in our own eye. Now it stretches the imagination to the breaking point to think about having a log in your eye, right? And so maybe we're tempted to think, well, what kind of log is this? Is this like, more like a twig or is this like a log? What, what, are we, what are we dealing with here? And so I looked up the word, and the word is also used in other contexts to talk about a load-bearing beam in a house. So this log is the real deal. This is a big log that's big enough to hold up some of the weight of an entire house. And it's hilarious to think about getting close enough to try to remove a speck out of someone's eye, and then you're bonking them in the head with the load-bearing beam that's in your own eye. But after we're done laughing, then we get convicted because we realize we do this all the time. 
We get in conflict with someone else and both parties won't budge because both people are convinced that the conflict is mainly the other person's fault. I've known marriages that have ended because both husband and wife are digging in convinced that the other person has to budge first. And nobody budged. Listen to how James puts it in James 4.1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? James is saying that if you're in an argument with someone, the cause of the fight is not something out there. The cause of the conflict is something that's in here. It's something inside of you. It's because you have passions and desires that are misaligned. Now, I'm not talking about exceptions where there's abuse involved. Certainly, if there's abuse involved, go get help. This is just your everyday, normal conflict that can, that can just mushroom into something massive if you don't deal with what's in here. Because when I'm in conflict with someone, I'm, I'm like, okay, I get that there's something wrong with me, but I think that it's probably about 10 to 20% wrong with me. And the other person has 80 or 90% wrong with them. And so since they've got the majority, clearly, they need to deal with them and then I'll deal with my own thing. But that's the spirit of scarcity once again. That's not kingdom generosity where I'm not being generous towards others. I'm being generous towards myself. So use the conflict that you get into as an invitation for Jesus to show you places where he wants to transform you. That's kingdom generosity. It's like in a volleyball game. Have you ever seen this moment in a volleyball game when the ball is going right in between two people and the, each person thinks the other person's going to get it? So the ball just drops right there on the floor? Jesus is saying, you be the person who says, mine. You be the person who goes and gets that ball. You own it first. Both people are thinking, well, they have to deal with their stuff first. You're not going to get anywhere. But if you agree with Jesus to say, yes, I'm going to deal with what is waging war against me inside my heart first, that's kingdom generosity. That's what it means to live this out. So as we close, I just want to give you some practical steps for how to live this out as you get in conflict with brothers and sisters in the family of God, which we will. So it comes from this book called Biblical Peacemaking by Ken Sand. It's an excellent book. And he has four G's of biblical peacemaking. Four G's when you get in conflict. G number one, glorify God. Decide at that moment that before being proved right before getting your way, the first thing you're going to go after is to glorify God. Ask Jesus, how can I most glorify you in this conflict? That's going to change your priorities. Second G, get the log out of your own eye. For, seek understanding of everything that you're doing to contribute to the conflict. Third G, go and be reconciled. Then, if necessary, as you get the log out of your own eye, go and repent before God and before that other person and be reconciled with everything that you can be reconciled with. And finally, then, oh, I'm sorry, that was gently restore. Restore your own stuff, then go and be reconciled. Where then and only then 
if there's a speck in your brother or sister's eye, then you can help them remove it. Because Jesus does end with the result of seeing clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. But start with yourself. So glorify God, get the log out of your own eye, gently restore, and go and be reconciled. Friends, Jesus is in the business of making us like him, making us like his teacher. We can't be above our teacher, but we can be like him. Let's seek the Lord and ask him to give us this kind of generous heart. Let's pray. Father, we are just undone by the immeasurable generosity of your mercy. As we start out 2024, we ask that you would make our hearts alive in worship of how much you've forgiven us. We have been forgiven much, so let us love much. You've taken our sins and removed them as far as the east is from the west. So would you let us mirror that generosity with our brothers and sisters in Christ? Would you take our hearts of bitterness, our hearts of unforgiveness, and just let them melt away under the cross, under the power of the forgiveness that comes from the cross? Would you do that for your glory? In Jesus' name, amen.